Solidarity Winnipeg podcast. Solidarity Winnipeg is working to lay the basis for an eco-socialist political organization. By that, we mean we are a small group of like-minded people who work in a coordinated way in community groups, in unions, and on campuses to build grassroots power, to educate people, to be effective eco-socialist organizers, and to build support for the long-term goal of breaking with capitalism and starting a transition to eco-socialism. Because Winnipeg is located on Treaty 1 territory, we acknowledge that Treaty 1 is the homeland of Anishinaabe, Cree, OG Cree, Dakota, Dene peoples, and the Métis Nation. The Canadian state has carried out genocide, ethnic cleansing, and forced removal of Indigenous people in order to clear the land for settlement by Europeans. The colonization and oppression of Indigenous peoples is not a thing of the past. It continues today. But around the world, Indigenous peoples are leaders in the fight against capitalism and environmental destruction. We have a lot to learn from Indigenous cultures and teachings that will help us heal our relationship with the land and with each other. episode of the Solidarity Winnipeg podcast is mostly about the strike by the University of Manitoba Faculty Association and the student support efforts for it that happened in November, December of 2021. However, there's been a bit of a delay in releasing the January episode, and so there's both the need and opportunity to say something about the so-called freedom convoy and the far right today. Winnipeg socialist Mandolin Unger wrote on Facebook on January 25th, if there's a Nazi at the table and 10 other people sitting there talking to him, you got a table with 11 Nazis. This truck convoy was planned by white supremacists with documented histories of xenophobic racist views. They're the same white supremacists who scream about immigrants stealing their jobs. They leverage the term vaccine passports, but take no issue with the border when its violence is killing migrants. They claim to fight for freedom, the same vague and persuasive catch-all banner flown over military invasions. It's no coincidence their movement is full of cops. Honking your horn so you can breathe on an underpaid waitress doesn't make you a freedom fighter. These truckers will not be met with militarized RCMP raids on their homes. No fascist police will kneel on their throats. They will not be beaten or harassed because they pose no threat to the status quo. They are the status quo. This is playing pretend. And it's a shame because if you wanted an enemy to fight, you would find it in capitalism, the real cause of empty shelves and the pandemic dragging on. Capitalism is the reason workers are forced to risk their lives on pain of homelessness and starvation as fodder for rich people's yacht money. It's the reason vaccines are privately patented and not freely available to everyone who needs them. It's the reason hospitals are under-resourced. It's the reason all the billionaires got richer. It's the reason corporations run the world and will burn it alive with your grandkids still on it. It's the reason you're exhausted and fed up and afraid to lose your job, but instead of fighting them, you're fighting the people who've died the most needless deaths, your fellow workers, struggling just like you to survive. I'm deeply sorry you were taught to fear the scientists and doctors dying to protect you. I'm deeply sorry that you've struggled. But if you're not interested in complicated, humbling, lifelong solidarity work, and you'd rather be told you're special by a YouTube grifter selling you easy solutions, you're not tough enough for the real fight anyway. I wish I had any patience left to show you why we should be on the same side. Instead, I'll just ask you to look around. If your movement has you standing next to Nazis and you don't mind, guess what? I'll just add a few thoughts. We're going to come back to these issues in future episodes of the podcast, of course. But if we're going to combat the rising threat of the hard right and the far right, there are some things we can think about. 
Judy Rabick and Corvin Russell have just written an article published on rabble.ca that I highly recommend you check out, um, in which they argue that the left has been missing on the pandemic. And they argue that we need, a, in their words, a clear alternative pathway that increases solidarities, protects workers, addresses social gaps, and leaves us better prepared for the next pandemic or for the far greater crisis of climate change. In other words, we really need a left alternative approach to the pandemic, one that's going to be challenging governments moving to prematurely declare that the pandemic is over and that the virus is now endemic, then taking down removing public health measures. Some of the things that we need to fight for include improved ventilation and filtration in workplaces, because of course this is an airborne virus. This also applies in other indoor spaces. We need to push for free KN95 quality masks and rapid antigen tests to be made widely available to people. We need to strengthen employment insurance, employment income insurance, welfare and income support in general. We also have to have an intelligent and effective push to get people to get third doses of the vaccine and to try to convince vaccine hesitant people to get first, second and eventually third doses. More generally, if we're gonna take on the threat of the far right, we need to organize through unions and community organizations in ways that are militant and effective to help workers to defend and improve our jobs, living standards and public services. Because when we work together collectively against employers, landlords and governments, it shows in practice there's an alternative to blaming vaccine mandates or other public health measures or immigrants or other scapegoats for the problems in people's lives. We can promote anti-racist, pro-indigenous, anti-colonial, anti-sexist, pro-queer and trans ideas in our workplaces and schools, on campuses and in community spaces of all kinds, especially outside the kind of enclaves where those ideas are most influential today. And if we want to make headway among working class people who might be influenced by the right, we need to link these ideas to class politics. We need to take every opportunity we have to challenge, vigorously challenge the ideas of anti-vaccine mandate, anti-mask and other reactionary forces, uh, the People's Party, ideologues like Jordan Peterson and so on. All of this flows into the, the politics of the, the far right, the fascist right. We need to expose what these people stand for and make the case to people who are repulsed by them that we can't simply ignore them. If we're talking to people who are actually tempted by the, the far right, the hard right, we should explain that many of the problems that the, the right is talking about really aren't problems at all, like wearing a mask, for example. Uh, and that when there are genuine problems in people's lives, the solutions being offered by the right are false and harmful. And finally, we need to try to mobilize whenever we can to deny the far right platform for their ideas and to prevent them from conducting public activity. Again, we'll be coming back and discussing these and related issues in future episodes of the podcast. But for now, we'll move on. And this episode is about the UMPA strike. episode of the Solidarity Winnipeg podcast. We're going to be discussing the strike that the University of Manitoba Faculty Association had uh, from the beginning of November until uh, December of 2021. And so we'll start by doing a round of introductions uh, in alphabetical order. I think that means I go first. I'm David. I'm a member of Solidarity Winnipeg and also a member of UMFA. My name is Joe Carno. I am a faculty member at the University of Manitoba um, and Faculty of Education, and I'm also an UMPA member and part of the Organizing and Communications team. I'm Mads Meyer-Parr. I'm a third-year sociology student. Um, I use they-them pronouns, and I was a student-supporting UMPA uh, member. 
my name is Travis Huni, and I'm a second year fine arts student. And yeah, I was also a member of Student Supporting Alpha. Okay, I'm going to just uh, give a little bit of the background to the strike. Um, and then we'll talk about the basic events for people who don't uh, know what happened, get us on the same page before we talk about some of the things that we learned from the experience. So we need to go back to 2016 when AMFA, which represents the um, people whose jobs have professor in their title, plus people who are um, classified as instructors who uh, generally do, for most of them, teaching um, and service work, but not also research, like professorial rank people, and also librarians. Um, so this is the union at, at the U of M. Uh, it was, there was a strike, and it, during the strike in uh, the fall of 2016, the provincial government intervened behind the scenes to prevent the uh, employer, U of M, from offering the, the wage offer, the financial offer that they've made to UMFA. And there were a whole number of issues on, you know, that were on the bargaining table during that strike. Um, but at one point, the, the employer had to withdraw, they withdrew their, uh, their monetary offer. And so as a result of that strike, which was a modest success for the union, uh, there were no gains made on the issue of pay. And so this was because the provincial government was actually just moving towards implementing their uh, public sector wage restraint law, uh, Bill 28, which they subsequently did. This was the Public Services Sustainability Act that imposed four years of 0%, uh, 0%, three quarters of 1% and 1% as uh, salary caps on people in the broader public sector in Manitoba. So that kind of kicked the issue of uh, salary ahead and UMFA did go through years of getting four years of 0%, 0%, three quarters of 1% and 1% on pay. Uh, in the fall of 2020, the union had what's called a salary only reopener. So it was bargaining between the union and the employer only on the issue of pay. But that was the something that was negotiated in the final year of that contract. And so there was the possibility of a, of a strike and there was a strong strike vote and authorization for a strike that was given. Uh, but as it turned out, the government ordered the University of Manitoba to give UMFA 0% on pay. And then the university offered 0% with a one-time only lump sum so-called COVID stipend, a little bit of money that was added in. Um, many UMFA members were unhappy with this, but we voted in a, with a narrow margin to, to ratify that offer. Um, the University of Manitoba was subsequently punished by the government for even offering that little COVID stipend uh, by having the money clawed back from uh, the university's funding equal to the amount that had been paid out to UMFA members in that stipend. So that's where things were in the, you know, the end of 2020. And many UMFA members were unhappy about, you know, I guess almost all UMFA members were un unhappy about what happened in the fall of 2020, uh, but people interpreted it in different ways. And uh, some people interpreted this as the fault, the 0% the, the pay increase uh, as the fault of the union's leadership. And which I think was a completely absurd interpretation. Uh, but it led to a very narrow election victory by two uh, outsiders, uh, people who haven't really been very involved in the union, one not at all, 
one only marginally, both from the law school, um, both you know more conservative than the uh, people who were the pre outgoing president and vice president. Um, so that um, you know, they, they took office in the in the spring of 2021. But activists in the union uh, before that happened were already working to lay the basis for a different kind of approach to this round of collective bargaining than had been adopted in Alpha before. So maybe I'll pass it over to Joe just to talk about, about what happened uh, starting in early 2021. Yeah, so I think when we went into the strike vote in 2020, um, nobody was happy with the, the ratification. Um, people knew that this was not a good deal, but understood that this was the best deal that we were likely to get as we Manitoba had just gone into code red and we weren't allowed to gather, we wouldn't be allowed to pick it, we wouldn't be allowed to, to do anything. And there honestly hadn't been a ton of groundwork um, in terms of the kind of uh, political mobilization that would have been necessary. I think people realized that we weren't really bargaining with our employer. Um, and I think that was borne out when we found out that the government had clawed back dollar for dollar um, the COVID stipend that David had mentioned. And so I think the shift that happened in my mind um, was a decision to, uh, and that was put forward to the membership in a way that I think some people felt was confusing and um, other people felt was really important, uh, was a decision to move forward with an aggressive organizing plan that might build the kind of power we need to have a different outcome. So starting probably in around January of 2021, um, people on the exec uh, and the organizing and communications committee started to draft an organizing and communications plan that laid out uh, a way to build membership um, buy-in and do a lot of work to build power with uh, elected officials. The pretty significant shift in tactics for UMFA. Um, historically, my understanding is that it's been more of a, a business union. Um, and so it hasn't been member driven, but there are lots of people who are interested in having a member driven union and who stepped up, um, starting with doing the organizing for power workshop that Jane McAlevey um, and her team at Rosa Lux host um, in the spring, and then working over the course of the year to, to change the way that or to begin to change, and I think this is going to be a long-term culture shift, um, the way that folks are engaging with UMFA, because so often I hear uh, UMFA members talking about UMFA as like an abstract other entity that like decides for us, on us, um, rather than thinking about members doing the work as the people who um, decide what happens. And so that's a big shift that many of us are committed to. Um, and so uh, the organizing and communications plan included a lot of things, um, stuff like, you know, how do we bring in, in the new members who started during COVID um, and have never met with any of their colleagues in real life um, to larger things like how do we roll out um, a campaign to build relationships with every MLA in Manitoba or any, every MLA where um, UMFA has members in their writing so that we have relationships of accountability where they come to UMFA whenever there's a question about post-secondary because we are the experts on the ground um, and we should be helping to inform the policy decisions and directions. Um, and so that was is the place where I spent the most time. And so maybe I'll speak to that. And then David, if you want to bring it more global, I'm happy for you to do that. Um, but basically starting in the summer, 
the organizing and communications team worked to reach out to members in all of the writings um, where we have members and reach ask members to do a couple of things. First, um, to email their MLA and say, hey, we would like to meet. Um, and so that was a type of structure test, which a structure test is an opportunity for us to see what kind of take up we get from members, how committed they are to specific issues and how willing they are to do um, things that that we as the organizing and communications team ask them to do. And we got really excellent uptake on this. So we had people email and then we asked people, will you actually do a meeting? And so we did a bunch of Zoom meetings and outdoor park meetings in person with um, MLAs. We met with, I think, every um, every MLA from the NDP where we have members and every MLA uh, from the Liberal Party where we have members and only two from the Conservative Party would, were willing to meet with us. And their logic for that was that they were in this bananas space of the leadership race for months. Um, and then they wouldn't meet with us because we were going to be in on strike. So, um, but the meetings that we had were actually really, I think, really powerful. And uh, they build on an organizing model that is not a, a labor-focused one, but a community organizing one. Um, I think one that comes out of a lot of Alinsky work, but also some other models of community organizing, um, where members just talked about their experiences as um, as workers on the ground. Um, and what the impacts were. And so this was really significant because as we saw down the road, the, the language of recruitment and retention being a crisis at U of M came out, but that didn't come out of any like, you know, fancy focus group, like, you know, expert marketing team that came out of these meetings. And it was really this organic process of meeting with MLAs and folks talking about what is it like? Like, what are our working conditions like? What are the problems that you're seeing that are related to the government interference in our workplace? Um, I think that David wants to chime in. I just think listeners should understand that uh, people who, who are in UMFA often are very siloed from each other. Like, we do have our different departments, and people really don't know what it's like in other faculties, other parts of the university. Uh, and so, it was I think, very illuminating for people, for, for members to be in these town halls, meeting with MLAs, but learning about each other's experiences. You know, I have no idea what it's like to be in immunology, for example, because um, I'm in the Faculty of Arts. So um, I think this was a really important dimension of the uh, meetings that Joe was talking about. Absolutely. And from a community organizing perspective, this is the role of um, house meetings um, and where you are able to like share your own experience, but also collectivize that. Um, and then also move from problems to issues. So problems being like something you personally encounter um, to issues being something that has a political solution that we might do something about. Um, and so through our meetings, we heard again and again, and again, and again, and again, that folks couldn't hire um, people into the positions that they posted, that we would make an offer to first candidates, second candidates, third choice candidates. We'd have failed searches. Um, uh, I think because I facilitated a lot of these meetings with elected officials, I heard so many times um, in a way that was really breathtaking um, how widespread this issue was. It wasn't just like um, a couple of places that was almost every place with a couple of exceptions in humanities where they're just not hiring anyone. So I think through that collective 
experience of naming um, the problem and hearing from your colleagues about how similar the issues were and how how deep the problem was. I think it really emboldened members um, to to see our fight around wages as actually not just people being greedy. And I think that was a lot of what I had heard the year before was like there were a lot of members who who were like really comfortable with saying, you know, we should be paid more. Um, and there were a lot of members who were like, I'm not going on strike for pay. Like we are relatively wealthy um, workers in this province um, and we're going into, the, and we're in this pandemic and all this other stuff. Um, and I think it, it really shifted um, the way that people were thinking about social good and the future of higher education um, to be able to say like, actually we can't hire anyone who we um, are looking to hire and we have this huge problem um, in terms of innovation. And there's all of these impacts um, down the line that impact students, that impact um, the province, that impact things that are much bigger than, than just like how much money I make individually. And so I think it shifted how people uh, were thinking about the issue and how much they were willing to fight for it. And so that I think set us up to have this broader conversation about recruitment and retention and large and investment in higher education in Manitoba. And I'll just jump in to say that the, the organizing plan was adopted by I think 85% of the vote of members attending the annual general meeting in, that the union had back in, in May. Uh, but we were in a contradictory position because the incoming president and vice president didn't support it. Uh, uh, now, this is UMF has an unusual situation where the executive is made up of those two directly elected people, and then the board of representatives, which is made up of um, people from different constituencies, uh, a larger department would elect one person to the board of reps or two, a bunch of smaller units get amalgamated together into a constituency to elect one. Um, you know, really big constituencies elect several people. Um, but the board of representatives is the highest decision-making body of the union outside of the general membership meeting. Um, and it appoints the other members of the executive, the ones who aren't directly elected by the full membership. Um, and so you had a situation where then you had these, inco these incoming people um, who did not support the plan that had been adopted by 85% you know, of the, the members voting at the AGM. And so there were a couple of months, things were through the summer where things were quite difficult inside UMFA um, because of the conflict, political conflict um, between the approach of those two members of the executive and, you know, almost all the other activists in the, in the union. Um, and so there was really an internal crisis, but um, and which led to the, the resignation of those two people. And subsequently, there were by-elections held to fill those positions. But uh, it did mean that, unfortunately, a lot of effort had to go into, um, you know, explaining what was going on to people and arguing about some of these issues and trying to um, to redirect things inside the union. So the energy that could have gone into some of the organizing work was uh, shifted in that direction. And I think that there's this really significant um, theory of change uh, contestation that was happening where uh, I think the folks who were elected um, over the summer or in the spring, um, really believed in that if we had hired, they wanted to hire an outside negotiator, um, like a legal firm to do that work for us. And they thought that if we had just argued more persuasively that we could win. Um, and they wanted to hire a professional marketing firm, I think, um, to, to make it, to get us better press. Um, 
And that is a, a theory of change that exists. Um, but the one that I think many of us were putting forward in the organizing and communications plan uh, was really different in that we were arguing that members um, needed to build power so that we could change um, change the balance of power with government and with our with our employers so that um, they had to give us what we wanted, not so that we could negotiate. Because I think many of us know, and I think social movement, I know social movement history shows us um, that it doesn't matter how persuasively you're arguing. Um, uh, it really matters how much you are able to like make the government do what you are demanding. Um, and so that, that was a really big, I think, piece of what was happening over the summer where it wasn't just um, about the specific personalities, though there was lots of, of that. Um, it really was a foundational disagreement, um, which I think that we successfully shifted. And I think that the, the receipts over the last year kind of show that we successfully um, built the kind of power and certainly not enough, and there's lots more work to do, um, to change how the government was interfering in our, our bargaining process and to make them um, wear it. They had to wear the strike. Um, and then I think also we showed that when we're, when we do the work to do like interesting um, and unconventional tactics, that we can get the kind of media that we need and the kind of public support that we need um, to really have a different kind of media presence than we'd ever had before. Um, and so I feel really good in that like the two core like theory of change arguments that they were putting forward, we successfully um, showed that there was an alternative that was member driven and about us working together collectively um, to, to do something really different and really much more effective. Maybe we should just say that uh, something very briefly about the strike itself, it started on November the 2nd and went until we returned to work on December the 7th. Hope I'm getting those dates right. And um, just in terms of the facts, I haven't actually seen a statistic about, you know, um, the percentage of members who did strike duty at some point, um, but it was, you know, a, a majority, but not a super majority. Um, there was a significant level of scabbing um, that I think perhaps a lower percentage than in the 2016 strike, but that, um, you know, overall majority went out and stayed out in order to win gains that, uh, you know, are they're relatively modest, but they're still significant. Um, and we won't know the full extent of the settlement, of course, until the arbitration ruling comes down that uh, addresses a whole number of issues. Um, and just to maybe touch on um, just that one point that the, the government, um, you know, had given a mandate to the employer to say, don't offer more than some mystery number, we don't know what it was, um, on, on salary to them. Um, and then at a certain point through the strike, because of the strike being so solid, and uh, as Joe was saying, the government having to, to wear it, um, clearly they told the employer that the employer could offer to go to arbitration to settle the salary questions, um, which provided a way around the government mandate. Uh, in other words, the government wouldn't withdraw the mandate, wouldn't say anything, uh, you know, wouldn't back down in public, but it provided an escape hatch um, for them on, on that issue. Um, but um, members also stayed out longer to uh, ensure that some, some important gains could be made that 
people didn't feel were appropriate to be left to arbitration. That was another important point just during the strike that uh, rather than sending everything to an arbitrator to decide on that there was an insistence that some details of the arbitration and some other non-monetary questions be dealt with at the bargaining table. In the lead up to the strike, um, we did a lot of the MLA outreach, but we also were doing unit by unit organizing. And I think not to the extent that we absolutely should be doing. Um, but in a way that again reflects this shift toward an organizing for power kind of approach. Um, and so we brought on a term organizer to do a lot of this work. And uh, I think that that's really significant in terms of um, shifting our union toward more of a steward model, which we haven't had in the past, um, but empowering the Board of Representatives members to do more of the work in their unit to, to get to make sure that we know who's going to vote, we know when people have voted, we know what the stats look like in terms of the kind of engagement that people in their unit have had in the past. So for example, I am in the Faculty of Education as a board rep, and I can see, uh, see like, okay, if I have 20 members um, who has been consistently coming to meetings. Um, if I ask, if I check with someone, will they vote? Um, do I know how they're gonna vote on uh, like a strike mandate um, and things like that? And so we really are trying to systematize our data collection on that so that we have our houses in order in a different way. And I, again, like we have, we, this was a really short-term organizing plan that we did and so this should be a lot stronger. And I think if it had been stronger, then we wouldn't, then we would have seen um, potentially very different levels of engagement with the strike. So um, I think we want to be moving towards super majorities and really all out strikes, but that's going to be a longer term process. Okay. I the other thing I think is important to say is just a quick walkthrough of the timeline of the strike. So our strike mandate um, vote happened in. Um, late October, um, we had a number of really fun actions and unconventional actions, and it might be useful for one of us to look that up and like include that. We did things like we had a dog walk at the ledge where the whole joke was that the PC government's mandate is a pile of dog shit. Am I allowed to say that? And then we had people picketing at the legislature almost every day, uh, which is a really significant departure from the standard um, pickets at at the entrances to campus. Um, we had a whole group of people, a pretty significant group of people who were doing online picketing because of COVID. Um, and so that really meant that our uh, social media game was like A plus 100. And uh, I think that doesn't really build power, but it certainly did boost morale and make people feel the kind of um, presence that they had been looking for in other, in other times in other places. We, from very early on, crashed Heather Stephenson, who is the incoming premier, uh, and then the premier, um, all of her events. So the, uh, the leadership election was out at some hotel near the airport, and UMPA members were there picketing to make it clear that we were going to be at every single event that she held. Um, we were at her swearing in with all, I think that was all of our members or several hundred of our members so that she couldn't do anything. She could never have any kind of news cycle that was positive that it UMFA's strike was always being pinned to her and her government. So we did a lot of things like that. In the second week, we were on reading week. And so it wasn't a strategic time to be on campus blocking entrances. And so we had all of our members going to her constituency office. Um, we planned sit-ins, which were kind of a, a 
arguably unsuccessful, but I think actually really successful in highlighting that she was totally MIA. Her constituency office was closed and we were there with students supporting UNFPA, like banging on the windows and looking in. We went through and we had alt members canvas every door um, in her writing. And then after that, every um, conservative writing in in Winnipeg and also Bossier. Again, these are not traditional tactics that you see in most strikes, but they were really significant. Um, we had really big press conferences around our members who are workers in nursing, in healthcare research, talking about the impacts of the recruitment and retention crisis for health and safety, especially because of COVID. And I think those were really persuasive and really significant in building the, the engagement of workers in UMFA who are at their health sciences campus, who I think felt really strongly and were really mobilized in a different way because of the way that the government has been treating them over the last year and a half. And so we had really strong participation from nursing. Uh, we had really interesting engagement from places that I think we don't normally see really like militant action. And then we also were doing stuff at public events and public hearings around the budget. And I will let student supporting UMFA talk about that. But like this collective uh, energy was like, there's consistent picketing, but then there's also um, like really interesting and energetic community organizing that shifted, I think, the balance of power in a, in a way that was, was very unusual for UMFA's organizing team. I think that's enough from the UMFA members. Let's hear from students. Maybe I'll just try to attempt to like really briefly summarize the, the path that the student side took, because I think it it sort of um, has a similar shape to what you're describing with UMFA's internal change. Like Joe, you talked about problems versus issues. So that was sort of like where we had to start from scratch was uh, to build membership in our group. Uh, we had to like convince people uh, to pretty much put their problems aside, like how the strike was gonna affect them as students and really focus on the larger issues. Um, of why it was happening. And at, at first, the the goal, and I think why we were able to get a lot of support was we wanted the strike to be avoided. We wanted to put a lot of pressure as much as we could for UMFA to just get that, that fair deal right off the bat um, to avoid the strike. And then when that didn't happen and the strike was going to happen, I think like our trajectory changed quite a bit and it became more about boosting morale for UMFA. And eventually also became about like what we could do that was different from everyone else, like trying to do more direct action stuff and like educating each other, like educating our peers and other students. And uh, we had like the, the teach-in component as well. But then, yeah, once it became clear that it was going to last a long time, like that was where it was really tricky. And we had our own issues with, with theories of change, uh, which... I know like I didn't even know that that was a thing uh, until it was happening. So it was, all of that was really interesting. Yeah, where the, the group started to struggle a bit with like, are we trying to get people out to pickets? Like, are we good at mobilizing people? And I, I think personally, I would say like the, that wasn't our strength, like mobilizing big groups of students, which we thought would be our strength, but it wasn't. And then, yeah, like, do we want to do more direct action or is it too risky? Like some people... We're thinking, but I don't know. I think in the end, it was our, our major role was probably just to boost morale. And I think like in hindsight, to me, it looks like uh, 
Umfo was always going to have to be out on the picket line until it um, like financially impacted administration, I guess, like if, if it had gone further and then they had to mess around with the summer term a lot, like I think that would have been a, a bigger headache for them. So, um, so I think that we probably just helped um, the UMFA members feel like they could stay out there. Yeah, maybe maybe Mads could could pitch in uh, or chime in on that. I probably missed a lot of stuff. I think that we had a really great presence in in being there. I think for what we could bring out, uh, whenever we did come out to do something, we got it done. But yeah, it wasn't our strength in mobilizing students, and we really thought we were going to be able to get that. But we also faced like opposition from you know, the, the university student bodies at points that I think kind of hindered us as well. And I believe that when it came down to it, we figured out what exactly we could do. Uh, and that wasn't mobilizing large masses. It was being there and kind of keeping an ear to like what our profs were feeling and trying to accommodate to that. Yeah. And, and also like with some of the direct action stuff, I don't really know, actually, like I'm, I'm having trouble assessing whether it worked or not. Like I know for us, it empowered us, like having those direct action, those like direct action moments kind of dispersed throughout the whole period of time. I, I know for us, it was just like a big spike of adrenaline that made us feel like, oh, okay, like we can do important things. And then it would like take us to the next sort of crest uh, or whatever. Um, but I don't know, Joe, maybe you could speak to that. I think y'all are very much selling yourself short um, because I, yes, it's true that like the large scale mobilization, there wasn't time um, and capacity to build. Um, I think it's important to note that student supporting UMPA really came out at the like very late in the game. And so like it would be unreasonable to expect to have the infrastructure to do that kind of organizing work and mobilization work. Um, but the the direct actions that y'all did were incredibly important in my mind um in shifting things like the morale thing was is big right and like it was extremely meaningful to the faculty out on the picket lines to have students there being like yes keep going and um, it was incredibly important to have student voices who persistently in the press being like yeah this sucks but it's worth it and we know that that this makes a difference for the quality of our education um i think that that was really important for umpa members and also for like a general public support kind of thing and we had so much public support for the strike in a way that really surprised me but also like the fact that you were prepared to do sit-ins going to um awasco's office and messing up his day. I think that there's lots of stuff that people don't even maybe know that happened. So maybe you could tell us more about some what those direct actions were. And I think also thinking about how that experience, that, that experimentation helps you to think toward the future. Because I think one of the most important things that come out of this strike is not the like financial gains, though I think for certainly for like the lowest paid instructors and 18% increase is really significant. But I think the political organization and the kinds of conversations that y'all were in all the time are actually the biggest investment in for the province because having experience going to an elected officials public hearing and bird dogging them is really important and it really put them off their footing and I think really made them want to, to stop having the strike be their problem. Um, so maybe can you tell us all the stuff that you did? Uh, we attempted to organize a sit-in at Heather Stephenson's office to which degree that actually 
succeeded depends, but I think it became something else entirely where she wasn't there. I was the person running the Twitter that day. (laughs) And so I just ran wild with it. I was like, where are you, Heather? You know, what happened to being together with Heather? Are you really listening to us? Because like no one was there when we were trying to call in um, that being like part of the action, like the phones at one point were dropped. No one could get through. And then, you know, just really unhelpful secretaries. Well, you need to do this when we've sent through our petition, I think like 1500 emails to these MLAs and the premier. And so what was going to be a sit-in became like this big picket in front of her place where it was then kind of playing up this angle of her absence, as well as um, just like annoying every, every channel we possibly could. Uh, in terms of like trying to phone in and trying our best to just make more of a disturbance. And the staff in these MLA offices were definitely not used to to hearing from constituents. They were sullen and and grumpy about it. And they were like sending us different places, right? They were like, oh, this isn't our decision. This is this person's decision, blah, blah, blah. And so I think that was a politicizing moment for a lot of UMPA members and possibly students also to see the kind of disrespect and unaccountability. And it really framed Heather Stephenson's first weeks in office as being totally MIA. I think in part because of Matt's social media um, and I think this this broader moment, like we were able to frame the whole media discourse for several weeks around what, where the heck is she? I think the next thing would have been the, the lockout at the administration building. Um, so that was sort of like a, I guess like a hard picket sort of outside of our, um, our university's administration building. So the idea was that because we're, uh, we're not able to be in our classes um, due to the administration's uh, lack of cooperation, uh, that we were gonna prevent them from being able to go about their business. Um, so we were gonna not let them go inside to work. That was an interesting experience. Like that definitely um, contributed to a lot of change within our group for sure, um, because it was really exciting and made us feel like we were definitely like doing something really tangible and immediate. We did what we wanted to achieve, which is um, like the administrators ended up working from home uh, the rest of the day because we had been there so long. But then like we we sort of realized after that process that we needed to be a little more uh, careful about our, our vetting process because we had like kind of external supporter volunteers kind of helping us with this. and. Um, and yeah, like one of, one of them took it too far in a way that we definitely weren't cool with and had talked about. So that was, um, that was tricky, but I think in the end it was probably successful. I don't know if maybe Mads, you have thought. Yeah, the, um, it showed us how careful we had to be with our planning, um, especially because when we all separated to go to different doors, uh, the dynamic really did change. Like we weren't there as a like a group in the front there was like three doors at that time that we had to cover and I think when we weren't sufficiently divided to keep that kind of eye on everything it really showed how how quickly that could kind of go out of hand but also that like how competent everyone was in dealing with the aftermath of it I think it also 
taught us that like, while we can have these amazing highs, um, there's lows and those lows need like are just as important to learn about as they are about everything else. And I think after that day, we also, it did create some like adverse, like fear to doing it again. But I also think it really taught us that this is a part of it that we do need to deal with and it's not 120% avoidable. Yeah, I think that's when we really started thinking about the the theories of change because I think up to that point, um, and, and also like just zooming out, like this is the first time that any of us had done any sort of organizing at all. And I know that we'll probably talk about that later, but that was like a major component of all this is that we were just really excited to be doing something about something. Um, so I think up to that point, there was like a lot of uh, excitement about everything we were doing, but then that was like a, sort of a, I don't know if wake up call is the right term, but uh, we just realized, oh, okay, like there's actually different ways that we could be going about this and um, we should, you know, try to be on the same page with everything as much as we can. Yeah, and then I guess the next thing we did was a, a sit-in a really small sit-in um, in uh, an administrator's office um, that was kind of like set up as a, an actual meeting, but then um, we sort of um, made it something else. Uh, we had like demands of, of this administrator. Um, so that was interesting. I actually, that's another one where it's like a big mystery, mystery to me. Like, I, I don't know if we'll ever know if it was successful. Um, what we wanted was to use that as a stepping stone to get to a meeting with the university's president and that didn't play out. Um, and we also were kind of advocating for more transparency um, for the administration because they were doing a lot of, uh, they were spreading a lot of misinformation directly to students' emails and that was a big issue. Um, but regardless of whether it worked, um, that was like the most I guess one of the more militant things we had done because we were, it was extremely uncomfortable for us, but we were doing it because uh, we believed that it was, you know, an effective thing to do. And I, it definitely made one administrator really uncomfortable. And I, I don't know if it maybe affected others in a way, um, like this person was on the bargaining team uh, for the admin. So hopefully it had some sort of impact of, of shaking things up a bit, but like regardless, it was a good experience for us. I think I could speak to um, the kind of context of what really motivated us to want to do that meeting. Throughout the strike, we had dealt with so many like admin or like um, other groups coming in and using their leverage to like email the entire like student population misinformation or like information that misrepresented the situation. And that's really frustrating when you can't access these direct pipelines to even give like, you know, like neutral information about what is happening. Things like compassionate grading, people were worried about what was going to happen to their courses like that. That wasn't really the information that was coming out. And I think would have been, you know, appropriate. It was, you know, like them trying to fancy up their their counter offers and ways that wasn't accurate and that was a social media field day <laughs> but yeah uh that's kind of why we were really concerned about misinformation is because we weren't getting useful neutral or impartial information about what was going to happen to us students we were just kind of getting information that was intended to make us outraged at professors yeah and i think it 
it probably taught us a lot about power as well, like just in really general terms, because um, maybe even up until that point or the strike, I guess, in general, like students probably wouldn't have viewed their administrators as like having this kind of excess level of power. Like, I don't think most students probably really care about the deans that much or like the president of the university. Um, but then in those moments, it was like, for the students that did care about UMFA members and, and wanted a better outcome for their profs and everything, um, getting those constant emails that were like completely disingenuous, I guess, that really like showed people, oh yeah, actually the administrators do have more power in this situation than they should because they're, they have a direct line to the, you know, 25,000 students and we need those people to be on UMFA's side. So that was like a really tricky thing for us to do, like figure out how we can sort of shift that imbalance even in, in small ways. Then later on, we um, participated in um, some of the direct action that UMFA was doing. So um, we attended one of those events um, that Heather Stephenson was putting on or speaking at um, where we were handing out leaflets to people that were, I guess, Heather Stephenson supporters and sort of like trying to show them that this is an issue that they can't ignore. So I just remember Heather Stephenson was invited to this fancy party that was like, you know, $200 a plate um, and UMFA members and students supporting UMFA went and just did a leaflet. Like we talked about doing something more confrontational, but we decided a leaflet would be fine. And we actually ended up, you know, leafleting every single fancy member going into this bougie hotel. And um, also then like one of the students supporting UMFA members um, successfully met Stephenson getting out of her car. It's like, hi, I'm a student, I'm here. And it's that kind of stuff that really, I think just like destabilized the PC government. I don't think that they were prepared for that kind of presence, accountability. I don't think they're at all used to public accountability. And so this, it was a really good thing. And I think that really set the stage for the budget hearings, which were um, definitely ratcheting up the pressure in a way that was useful um, and which didn't have a ton, of, like a huge number of supporters. And so this is again, where we were, we're drawing from different social movement theories of change, right? Like some things we need to have a huge number of people, other things we don't. In many of those cases, we can have a small number, you know, 30 people on a Saturday night go and do something that is impactful. Yeah, definitely. And for, for these smaller scale things, um, it didn't really matter too much that we couldn't get the the support of all of our group, or I guess we had the support of them, but maybe they didn't all want to participate because it, we didn't necessarily need 25 people to come to these smaller things. I hate to say it, but the, uh, the confrontation with Heather was so human and awkward. <laughs> I, we didn't even realize it was her at the time. We had been like so amped up and like uh, bothering every other person going into this bougie event. When Heather Stephenson got there, I panicked and I was like, oh, is that Heather Stephenson? And I had awkwardly offered a pamphlet to her. Um, so not as cool and humanizing as I, I wish it was, but <laughs> it was definitely humanizing. <laughs> Yeah, um, and then I guess the when we moved on to the budget hearings, that was even more uh, direct and close quarters with with government officials. So um, this was going to uh, yeah provincial budget hearings for for the twenty twenty two budget, 
Um, the first one was with Minister Scott Fielding, um, who's the Minister of Finance. And yeah, it was basically this extremely boring presentation about how great uh, we are with our money. And then we got up there and did a banner drop um, and basically shifted the whole thing to be about what was going on because um, I guess the big question was, was this uh, mandate that the province had on the, the university's bargaining. And uh, yeah, we, we couldn't get him to admit to it or give us any, any substantial answer. It, it turned into, you know, just literally repeating the same uh, line over and over back to us. So that was definitely a, a moment where we got out a lot of our uh, anger, I think. Uh, and this was like a month into the strike too. So uh, we were like looking at this guy who's like responsible for what we're going through and he's given us nothing. So, and then maybe Mads, did you want to speak on the uh, Bozger? So we went to Bozger to go to a budget meeting with Minister Wasco and Minister Fielding. And uh, we had gone there earlier before the uh, budget hearing to practice some artistic vision onto Minister Wasco's office, that being postering up the office and, you know, putting in our two cents as well as uh, pamphleting around town. So we put up like pamphlets on street posts and talk to people who are out and about. It was really interesting to hear how puzzled people were by Minister Wasco not being responsive to requests to meet him. I feel like that was like a lot of what people said when we like encountered them was just a lot of confusion about not being able to get a hold of him. Yeah, and so at the end of the end of the day with that one, um, I also don't know how effective it was besides just, you know, annoying the, the Minister of Advanced Education and, you know, getting up in his face. I guess maybe it would have put pressure on the constituents and they, they might have done something about it, but it actually like, just timeline wise wasn't too far from the end of the strike. So I guess we probably wouldn't know if, if it was impactful, but maybe we could like move on to, uh, we've kind of got really in the weeds on the student stuff. Like maybe we could talk about some of the broader lessons that that we learned and that UMFA learned. I think this is an important question um, because there are I think lessons from this experience that are relevant to people who had nothing to do with U of M, but who will be listening to this uh, podcast episode. So I think one basic idea that this just confirms for us is the way that people's ideas can change through their experience of collective struggle, right? I think whether it's UMPA members or students, people who are participating in the strike or supporting it, you know, many of us have had our understandings of things shift as a result. Uh, certainly, I think many UMFA members have what I would call fewer illusions in the employer than they had before. Uh, a stubborn belief among people, uh, you know, faculty, that the university administration is uh, benevolent and committed to the public good or something like that. And I think the experience of the way the employer acted through the strike has shifted some people on that. And I think that's an important thing. I think it just proves a general point that people on the left can come up against. And there's often there's this idea that somehow the key thing we need to do to change people's ideas is just to get them to read the right thing or see the right meme or the, you know, that kind of thing. And of course, you know, reading is important. It's critically important, but there's nothing like the experience of actually participating in collective action, participating in some kind of struggle that leads people to be forced to kind of reconsider things that they thought before as a result of their experience. So do either of you, um, Mads or Travis, have any 
thoughts about that particular point? I totally agree. And it's interesting because for the umpha side of things, like this is like a work issue for you. And like, a, it makes sense that, that you'd be putting all the effort into struggling. Um, but for, I think for the student side of things, it's just kind of interesting that, that we did go through that process and, and change because it really it was sort of only like tangentially impacts us, like what happens to, to umpha. Um, or at least I think so. Yeah, like a, a lot of us probably didn't really think of ourselves as members of society. I, I would imagine, like I, I might be wrong on that, but I think most people just identify as students or potentially workers, um, but probably would, would, you know, put more weight to the student side of things. But yeah, like I, I think the people that participated in this realized that we are part of like a much larger group and when there's more of us that are working towards change that that things can change. I was asked asked by a UMFA organizer about like what radicalized you and I kind of always had my head in the sand about like the university because it's the university and universities are usually thought to be you know good trustworthy institutions and so my, my head in the sand, my head was in the sand for a long time. Uh, and it wasn't really until like the strike, I kind of had to witness what forces were working against us as students, as a person watching my professors be pushed around. I think that the work I did during the strike really put into perspective, like it, it disillusioned me to the functions of the university and uh, I otherwise would not have, I would not have known that if I hadn't involved myself. Yeah, and I think we're also like realizing that there's now so many more issues that we could have an impact on. Like at, at least there were things related to the strike that were sort of blind spots, like the entire issue of how it, it was affecting international students. Like I know we we didn't really put much focus on that, which is, you know, maybe a mistake but now we realize that we're like you know politically active people and we can like take on things like that in the future so yeah in general we all I, I assume we all feel like different people after this and like have more agency and probably want to pursue like further education or even if it just means like reading more books about this stuff um yeah it's it's all really exciting for sure I think it's interesting that you say reading more books, because I don't think that's where most of your learning on this came from, right? Like, I think being together in struggle and spending those hours and hours that I know you spent prepping and debriefing is, I think, where most of your learning happened. And so um, I think that reading books is really important. Like, obviously, I study social movements, um, but I also think that like that working together is where most of you, where I saw you being politicized in real time. And so I think those dinners after an action or those like long car rides where you're like really keyed up are so important. And I think having more space for those, like do build, organizing to have to be doing more direct action so that people have the spaces like and the sandboxes to play in and learn from is incredibly important and that's maybe one of the things we should be thinking about um how can we give people more opportunities to to do that experimentation um and then make sense of it together 
Joe, do you have any thoughts about that kind of thing um, that, uh, as it pertains to UMFA members and things that people who are not in UMFA who might be in other unions who are listening um, might want to think about in terms of, of some of that stuff? I mean, I think a lot of the, the community organizing tactics that we did were really different for people. They brought them into confrontations with power in a, a way that was generally outside of their experience and which was useful. Um, and I think one of the roles that the picket lines played was giving people lots of space to, to process that and make sense of it. And you could see that in real time in the conversations, on, in the social media posts that uh, people were doing for the virtual picketing. And so one of, uh, like, I think that was just a, a really useful thing um, was that people had time to do that sense-making and that um, like the polarization of the issues where instead of being like, oh, you know, um, President Benarash, who's a president of U of M is this benevolent actor, people saying, you know, like, why isn't he fighting for the university? And here's what I would wanna see in terms of collegial governance and like having a say over our workplace and people cutting these issues. I think that was important. I think getting people to do tactics that they normally wouldn't do is always useful. And one of the things that strikes are really good at, um, when I was on strike at U of T, we did hard pickets several times and they made people really uncomfortable, but they were also really effective. And I think it changes how people, some people, and like, it's always, there's always a, a diversity of interpretations, but it, it helps people to understand like what is, what moves the needle and is being polite and like asking nicely going to do the work that we need it to do, or do we actually have to, to do something different? So I think having experience doing direct action or seeing other people do direct actions is part of that, but also then creating the space for political education helps to do that. Uh, but if people aren't actually doing the work, then it's really hard to have anything to reflect on other than like abstract ideology where people are like, no, but the president is nice. He wants to, to help us when, when in, an, in a kind of vacuum of evidence. Yeah, I have a question related to what you said about um, people um, realizing that they can't just ask nicely uh, to get things done. So something that was interesting about this whole thing was that the, the clear enemy was um, like on the political side was the, the conservative provincial government. Um, I wonder how this would have played out differently if it was a liberal government or an NDP government, because like I believe that a similar thing probably would have still happened, but people's like political um, beliefs might have led them to act differently and maybe lean more into the asking nicely. I, I'm curious what, what everyone thinks about that. Like, I guess in general, whether this shifted people's ideas of like how electoral politics fits into these struggles and like to what extent we should pursue that avenue instead of like this more collective or direct action. I think that's a really interesting question. And of course, um, the fact that all these things have been taking place over the last number of years under a, a conservative government, you know, is very significant for shaping what's happened. I think that to the extent that there was support for the PC government um, amongst people in UMFA, um, you know, I think a lot of that's been whittled down. I don't think there was a whole lot to start with, but I'm sure there were some people that were affected by it to some extent. But I think um, what hasn't has not been challenged is people's confidence that if it was a different government, things would all be fine. 
And, you know, I very much hope that the PCs will lose the next provincial election and then we'll have an NDP government and then the terrain of the, the terrain of struggle changes. Uh, but then we're dealing with huge illusions in the NDP, right? That there are tons of people who think that having got rid of the Conservatives, you know, great, things are going to be fine again or something like that. This was a huge problem in Manitoba. Um, just to jump back for a second, 1999, the uh, Conservatives were defeated, the NDP were elected, and they went on to be provincial government uh, until 2016. And it was a, there had been you know, a certain amount of organized opposition to the Conservatives in the 90s, and it all ended. All the activism ended, and uh, there was no significant pressure from the left on the NDP government when they were in office. And so people won almost nothing from them. It's very small gains. And there was an extraordinary degree of complacency that built up in unions and uh, on the left. And that meant that when the Conservatives were elected in 2016, our side was in a very, very poor position to, to fight the austerity attacks. And so I think just going forward, um, we just have to be aware of the fact that, um, you know, capitalism is going to continue to create the conditions where there's a process of restructuring and attacks in post-secondary education and in lots of other spheres of society, uh, it's not going to be limited to what the PCs do. And so that'll be a different set of challenges to confront uh, under a different government for sure. But of course, having had some experience of, of struggle uh, here will be important to try to build on. But people are going to have to go through the experience of seeing that a different government will say one thing, but what we'll do may be something else. We dealt with it on smaller levels too. We're thinking like, oh, these are groups should be interested in our well-being, in our like in our interests. And I think at some point at the beginning we were like, oh, of course we can see like allyship and actual productive action from these groups until we eventually had to accept that we would not get these things. And I understand the, like, like the, the attitude that if we get in like the liberals of the NDP, like then we won't have to worry so much because I've always been in favor of asking nicely. And I've, it, it took a, took a lot of, a lot of this kind of asking nicely to blow up in my face to realize that it isn't about asking nicely. It's about demanding exactly what you expect from these organ like uh, organizations or from like government at uh, the local and the like federal level it's that you can't you can't get comfortable otherwise you're asking nicely it's just is just going to become drowned out yeah and like on a on a more zoomed in level um i wonder within umfa um now that the strike is over like whether umfa members would revert back to uh, a more nice relationship with administrators or like I would hope that they would maintain this distance that some of them have now like found themselves in where they they see the administrators as as their employer and that they identify as a worker for those that didn't before it seems like a lot didn't before that they thought they were like peers or something with with administrators your earlier question about the NDP is really significant and part of the way that I try to frame that in the MLA meetings, um, because this partially comes out of my Chicago like community organizing background, like I do not trust elected officials any further than I can throw them. Um, and I tried to 
like model and make really clear for for AMPA members who are participating that like we want a relationship of accountability and so every meeting that we had we had specific asks that we were going to follow up with like very quickly um, and that we were going to um, tell all of our members and so um, for a while that worked really well and then just because the volume of communications was so high I think that did not continue in the ways that I would have hoped later down the road. And so I think in a lot of the meetings that we had with Liberal and NDP members, folks were pretty clear about the ways, and especially with NDP, because they've been in power, about the ways that the NDP set us up to be in this position through COPSD and these other policies. Like, And so not letting any of the elected officials off the hook or letting them be like, oh, well, this is just a conservative problem. Um, and so I think that was that's important in terms of letting them know that we have a long memory. But I also think that all of the ways that we did partner with NDP and liberal MLAs, some of which were really useful and really productive. I think we were also setting sending some shots across the bow for them. So like when we go to the budget hearings and mess up Alaska's day, like letting them know that like we will do that for you too. And I think that is a harder sell for members because of what you were just talking about. But I, I do think that that part of the MLA strategy long-term in this relationship building and this accountability process is to set it up so that if we do have a, a, at least ostensibly more sympathetic government, that they know that they still have to respond to us and that they're working with us now to lay the groundwork for a post-secondary strategy that throws out the legislation that's come through in Manitoba around setting us up for performance-based funding and other interference in the way the university runs and, and stuff like that. But I, I think we very much need to be building that and we need to be doing that organizing now so that there is capacity to, to be engaged in different ways, but to really continue to build power so that the NDP is just as, a, as concerned about us as the PCs are. Yeah, I think I imagine it'd be helpful if, if UMFA members started to, I guess, realize that their experience was like, that they were fighting on the left, regardless of like a political party, because even if some of them would call themselves liberal or even like, I don't know, like fiscally conservative or something, by participating in strike action, like they're doing something that's like a leftist thing. So I don't really have anywhere to go with that, but I just think like maybe that would be an interesting framework for, for people to think about like how to go forward i think what makes it difficult and this would take us into another whole episode um is the question of what does left mean today i mean on a mass scale when politics is occupied by ndp liberals and conservatives and i guess the people's party you know when there's no significant organized force to the left of the ndp and when we live in this age where the idea that there's no alternative not just to capitalism but to capitalism in its current incarnation has been you know so strong that it's hard for people to kind of politically makes make sense of things. But I do think that if UMFA continues to be politically independent on the question of its vision for post-secondary education and pursues that regardless of the office of the government office, then that, you know, isn't that creates an important dynamic. But there's obviously a lot more that could be said about helping UMFA members to have a better understanding of what the under what are the underlying forces that are causing what they're experiencing in post-secondary education. So there's educa education within UMFA around that. One thing I didn't want us to, to lose in this discussion as well is maybe a, a general point about the significance of what we learned from this experience for changing unions, right? Because unions in Manitoba, like, things have been very sleepy 
for the most part for quite a long time. And there's an enormous amount of change still needed in UMFA. I don't want to in any way underestimate that. But the, the union has actually changed in some important ways in the last five or six years. And I think this, the strike certainly can contribute to that. It's not guaranteed. There, there's certainly a lot of the experiences that people have, have gone through have opened them up to, as Joe was talking about before, the idea of a, of a different approach to, to the union. People, a lot of people said that they felt this strike was different than the 2016 strike. That's something that was how they described it. And I think that a more participatory approach is something you know, that's been practiced to some extent in UMFA, and there's ways we can build on that to go forward. And I think that's a, a lesson for people in, in other unions, just that it is possible to win support to a different approach to doing unionism. And it's come out at the end of the day from the fact that what we were doing before wasn't working, right? And so, and that's true for so many unions. People are uh, going through the motions, doing things in certain ways, and it's not working. People are not able to make gains or they're, they're losing past gains. And so then there's the question of what do you do about that? And one possibility is, you know, to try to build the union in a, in a different way, to build a much more member-driven, democratic, militant, solidaristic, uh, democratic kind of, of union. So uh, there's a long way to go in that for UMFA, but there are some seeds, I think, that have uh, been planted. Yeah, I think over the summer when it felt like the union was so divided and the you know election was, I think there was like a 20 vote difference between stuff, like it felt really hard. But I think one of the things that has been borne out is that a lot of the people who were most critical from what got cast as the like conservative side, which I don't think is actually a totally good representation of what was happening, but people who were critical of the existing leadership or pre-existing were really kind of alienated from the union. And we've done it in not universally, but like, I think there was a lot of work done to bring a lot of those people into doing something about it. And some of this is just basic community organizing agitation. So when people complain about UMFA, you're like, who is UMFA? What are you going to do about it? Um, and actually creating space for people to do something about it. So there were folks who were really mad about the COVID response. And so just doing the work to be like, will you write the letter? Will you write a letter that we can send to, to Benarash has been really successful at then bringing in some of the people who are most vocally critical of UMFA's part of UMFA quote unquote's approach. And now they are like some of the key leads on the organizing around the COVID response. Same thing for nursing. I think there were a lot of people in nursing who were pretty unhappy with quote unquote UMFA, who like when when you take their critiques and their their concerns seriously, um, we're really looking for an avenue to to do something. And I think have stepped up in really incredible ways. Um, but those folks were all really critical. And so it's like, how do we take those concerns, those people who are most critical and not just dismiss them as being like, oh, they're anti-union because they're not. Um, but thinking about how do we find ways to be like, okay, what are you gonna do about it? And creating infrastructure to support that and working against some of the really entrenched patterns that UMFA has had in terms of like centralization so that there are ways for people to make decisions and drive campaigns and, and do the work that they wanna see in a way that is accountable, of course, to like the broader um, membership. But like we have to build the, that kind of infrastructure. And I think that's the long-term goal so that people have a place to turn their anger that is productive rather than like against the executive who really have kind of very little power. And hopefully we'll have even less power with a really member engaged union, but to, to create avenues for those folks to be 
doing the work and feeling like, oh, we are AMFA and we can decide what the union does and what the labor movement does in Manitoba. Because as you say, David, it has been very sleepy. And if members really decided to take ownership of it, I think that we could be in a really different boat, but that's gonna take years of building member power and political education and infrastructure. But I think that's the, the fight that we need to be building now so that higher ed still exists, you know? And I think, you know, this is a general point that so many of our unions are hollow shells and people's experience in the workplace, all sorts of bad things are happening and the union's irrelevant, right? To what's going on or, or it's perceived to be irrelevant or sometimes it genuinely is irrelevant because nothing's being done. Um, but when the union becomes a way for people to act collectively to make a difference in the workplace, then it can take people who've previously been hostile, right? And really change their relationship to the organization. And that includes people who might have been explicitly anti-union. It's really important not to write people off. Yeah, so it seems like pretty clear about how UMFA should go forward and like how this experience is going to change that union. And it's interesting to compare it to the student side of things because UMFA is going to be around um, for a long time. And so you, you will have that time to like do those things that take years. But as far as like the student side, the same people won't be in this group a year from now or, or whatever, like everyone's going to graduate. And so I think the way I see it, like what came out of our group is, is like people that have the potential to be future community organizers just in general. I, I mean, like we are going forward with uh, like with a new name, Student Solidarity Collective, and, you know, try to figure out how we can use what we learned from, from this experience to help um, with other initiatives on campus, but ideally like beyond campus and like recognizing how this connects to like all sorts of different things across Winnipeg. Maybe I'm curious what everyone thinks about uh, that side of things, like just uh, individuals becoming potential organizers as opposed to like the union changing. So this is like my whole body of research. So you maybe don't want to like set me loose on this question, but I think we should not underestimate how significant it is to bring in like a, a cohort of students who've been politicized um, and especially if like finding ways for, for y'all to be really engaged in community. Um, because I think that there's not a lot of people in Manitoba who have that experience of direct action who have been politicized. And so finding ways for people to continue to do that and connecting you to community is I think a really big piece of it. And maybe that's through the labor union and maybe it's through plugging into prison and police abolition work or other things. And that's like a huge outcome of the strike if that happens, right? Like, I think that's also true for members. Like there's a whole crew or whole crop of members who have seen what's happened and and have been politicized and are joining the organizing and communications team, but also hopefully, and I think we're already seeing this, who were, because they're connected to other members who are engaged in political work in a different way, are finding ways to get involved in city budget anti-austerity work, um, which is of course linked to prison and police abolition because that's where all the money goes in Winnipeg. And so like, I think that there will be these ripples for quite some time that are related to that. I understand like unionism in Winnipeg has kind of become sleepy and this kind of like looking out to like create more like community-based action seems to be like a really good route would community-based organizing just be like an overall plus or is there drawbacks to it as well I think the question is how is it done there's a desperate need for more community organizing in this city as well as a desperate need for the transformation of 
you know, of unionism. Um, and there's a dire shortage of committed organizers. We need far more. And so hopefully some of the students who've been part of this experience will go on to make lifetime commitments to being involved in one way or another in, in, in social struggle. And clearly there are lots of questions that get thrown up by the experience about trying to understand what works, what the causes of the problems are, what are the potential solutions, what's our political horizon, all those kinds of things. But I'm really hopeful that some of the people who've been through the experience of student supporting UMFA will be people who will be motivated, whatever they do next, to continue grappling with those things. Yes, because uh, it's definitely not, it's not a walk in the park. And as Joe was saying, there is like a considerable amount of infrastructure that you are now trying to set up. But I think some of the shift that y'all have reflected on to us, like today and in other spaces, is some of the hard, hardest part around politicization. And so I think when I talk about politicization, I think about it in terms of like tactical shifts in terms of how people participate. I think about it in terms of the kind of political consciousness, which I think is always developing and emerging. I think it's also some of like the ways that you think about um, what counts as knowledge and um, some of the core like ontological and epistemological questions around like how the world works, but also this question of identity. And I think that that's really big. So once people like start, like understand themselves as organizers or as activists, I think what my research shows, what other research is, is looking at is like, that makes it possible for you and possible and likely for you to be willing to do the, the work around tactical innovation and also the work around the political consciousness. So like, because people start to understand themselves as being left in a, in a particular kind of way, it means that people are willing to do the work to figure out that some of the questions that David is flagging, right. To like, to do the, to read those books that I was making jokes about um, earlier um, and to to be accountable to communities in a specific way and so I think like having dipped your toes in actually sets you up to be doing this work because some of the identity pieces and the ontological pieces have shifted into the tactical and the political analysis pieces are opened up in a different way because of those shifts already. Okay, so maybe let's talk about like, what are the next steps for folks who were part of this? You talked about the shifted name and vision of Student Supporting UMFA now, Student Solidarity Collective. What are your next steps for that group? We're going through like kind of a prolonged transition at the moment, um, just I think with the way that it lined up with all of us being thrown back into the coursework and then also the holiday and everything. So that's been a little tricky. So it's hard to predict how many people are actually going to be involved, like, whether we lost a bunch of people because of just life or like whether they're going to come back. But there are a lot of people that are really willing to do a lot of work going forward. At the moment, we're trying to figure out like things about structure because uh, that was like an issue with student supporting Alpha. So like tomorrow we're, we're going to do like a sort of reading group analysis of the structurelessness of tyranny or the tyranny of structurelessness. Sorry. So that's going to be interesting. Yeah. Just lots of like identity shifts and like, just like the knit and grit of being an organization and never, no, no one really here ever be having been an organization before uh, and having to like start that from scratch. So like lots of learning in the moment and how we want to decide things, even down to like how we can improve our democratic process. We did some, did some polling for the name 
and I noticed it had fallen apart when I did like a more public poll for like the last three options. I think those kind of lessons are also coming up still. It's just like, even though we learned so much being students supporting Umfa, we're still scrambling to learn more as we, uh, as we're now evolving. Yeah. And like, we're also trying to always remember that like, we don't have to reinvent the wheel um, because I think we, we do tend to, to go that way, like thinking that we're like the first people to do this type of thing. But then, you know, we have to realize that um, there are like things written about, you know, what works, what doesn't work. And we have people we can talk to like, like the two of you um, about like, you know, what works um, just from personal experience and everything. But yeah, I'm, I'm excited, but I do feel sort of like we're like walking on a tightrope where like we like have to get it right or else we're just gonna like lose the whole thing. So it's, but you're shaking your head no, Joe, but that's just how I, I feel personally. I mean, I understand feeling like that, but I also having done this for a long time, know that you will not get it right. Things are gonna go sideways and everyone will learn from it and it will be okay. Right. Like we make the road by walking is one of the expressions that gets used a lot. And like you just have to do the work to figure out how to do it better. And I think that everybody just needs to cut themselves a little bit of slack, but also lean on the the experienced folks in the community to help support the work where you want that. I feel like that all the time. I remember we did a little debrief and some people were really quick to reprimand ourselves for what didn't go right. But you know, we had four weeks that we didn't know when it was going to end the strike that we were constantly learning constantly on the move constantly having to make these really big decisions so we we had to go through the thick of it but as well as we did something pretty extraordinary in four weeks with the amount of people we had and i also keep urging that we go back to you know like our activist elders and like travis said like trying not to reinvent the wheel as well as like having to do the groundwork because that always has to be done, but not being afraid to look to who have done it before us, uh, whether that's through like meetings or um, if, if that's having to go through theory. Yeah, and also like realizing what has to be done and what needs to take priority and what doesn't and like what's practical, because I know some of us and definitely myself like and get way too like in my head and like just thinking about like the vibes of it all and like how do we all feel after that and um but that there's like maybe a limit to how much time should be spent on that stuff and maybe just in terms of going forward in umfa right now there's a campaign getting going around the province's plans to impose performance-based funding and post-secondary education that's got the potential i think to uh take off uh, among different groups of university workers, students, and other people. And then there's also the fight around the employer's plans for eventually reopening uh, to in-person teaching, working. Um, and so there's COVID-related uh, organizing that we've taken on as well. So those are immediate issues. Yeah, there's also, I think, the longer-term work around building infrastructure for people to be involved, right? Rather that's through the Board of Reps, getting every unit to be stronger. So we now know the units where we had low participation in the strike. Um, and we need to go in and do the work to figure out why people didn't go out, um, what their issues are, how we can, and like trying to build the kind of relationships where people feel accountable to other members and feel like spending time in UMPA is a good use of their time. 
I think we also need to do that work with the MLAs that all promised that they would meet with us after the strike was over, right? And like trying starting to build that relationship with the conservative MLAs who refused to meet with us, continuing to meet with the MLAs who did support us and who did come out. And all of that is kind of slow and tedious and like labor intensive work. And we are in an industry that will easily absorb, you know, 60 hours a week. And so people feel like they don't have any time. And so I think there's also a need to do the kind of agitation work with members to say, like, if you care about this, if you want us to be able to win big for you, then you have to do something and push people not to, to say like, oh, well, we're not going to be on strike for three more years and hopefully like much longer. But the way that we avoid strikes is by actually being powerful. And so in the same way that Mads and Travis, y'all were talking about how do we keep students engaged and like build on this momentum in this moment, like we have to have some kind of plan and some kind of infrastructure. So people are building because if you're not building you're dying and so I think that's really hard when people are all feeling really overworked and like slammed with all the marking and the the back to work agreement and all that stuff and so it is a tall order but I think there is commitment from organizing and communications committee and exec that that this is a priority that people need to be brought in while um they're they're fired up and and we need to give people a way to feel that sense of their own power in an ongoing way, not just every three years. Yeah, it's about building a, a leaderful union. And really, there's so many people who've come forward during the strike who've got the potential. They're already playing leading roles in different ways. And we need to provide the support to further people's development so that they can be more confident, more skillful, more knowledgeable to, to take stuff on because it really does have the potential to, to change the union that way. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Solidarity Winnipeg podcast. If you'd like to learn more about who we are and what we do, you can check us out on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Solidarity Winnipeg. But really the best way to keep in touch and follow what's happening in Winnipeg is to sign up for our newsletter at www.solidaritywinnipeg.ca. If you want to reach out to us directly with questions or comments, you can send us an email to info at solidaritywinnipeg.ca.